Hello, church. Really good to be with you all this morning. Um, first, I want to say greetings from San Francisco. Uh, we, we love coming to where the sun is, so it's really cool. Um, I, and I really love your, your pastors. Uh, Evan and Sandy have been our uh, spiritual leaders who, whose spiritual authority comes from their character not spiritual authority that comes from a big church or um, a big influence and stuff like that, but actually coming from their, um, their character, which needs to be the, like, uh, the foundation of all spiritual authority. So they're the real deal. They're like legitimately the real deal. I think you know that. Um, they're the real deal. I mean, other than the fact that they're vegan, they're the real <laughs> deal. But whatever. Um, you are in Sabbath month which is really rad. Usually, you usually get a day, but you guys get a whole month, so that's rad. Um, so what we're going to be doing is I want to teach formally on Sabbath. What is Sabbath? Maybe this is a new teaching for you. Maybe this is an old teaching, just like kind of redone. But I really, um, I really want to just impart into this faith community the idea of like all of us regularly practicing Sabbath as followers of Jesus. We believe um, the leadership here, our church, uh, the, the churches that we're friends with, that Sabbath needs to be one of the ways that we practice the way of Jesus. I think it's probably the most, other than what we do with our bodies sexually, I think even more so, Sabbath is the most countercultural act of resistance and testimony bearing witness to the world. If the church can nail this, uh, we'll have a lot to say to the world that's exhausted. So let's get into it. Uh, I'm going to read a, a, a swath of scriptures taking us from Genesis all the way, all the way to Hebrews. So listen, I'm not going to ask you to turn your Bibles there. We'll end up in Hebrews, so you can turn there, um, Hebrews 4. But I'm going to read this, and however you, are, you best take in the scriptures, whether that's closing your eyes, opening your hands, staring at me awkwardly, however you take those in, do that now. I'm going to read this over you. Um, this is almost like a biblical theology of Sabbath through Scripture, landing in Hebrews. Genesis chapter 2. By the seventh day, God had finished his work. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day. He made it a holy day because on that day, he rested from his work. All the creating God had done, this is the story of how it all started, of heaven and earth when they were created. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Mark 2, then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Luke 23, he went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then he took the body down from the cross and wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. This was done on late Friday afternoon, the day of preparation, as the Sabbath was about to begin. Hebrews 4, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is God's word. Lord Jesus, I pray by your power and your authority that you would weave into our lives maybe even the idea maybe even just the, the call, the, the, the invitation to begin to practice Sabbath as a way of practicing our identity in you, practicing what's truest about us, practicing the fact that you've done it all, practicing the fact that we're created 
and you are the creator, practicing the fact that we're liberated, all these things, Lord, would you plant the seed so that we can be whole-formed disciples of Jesus, being light into our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So a little bit about me. Um, my name is Dave. I live in San Francisco. I am married to my high school sweetheart, Ashley. We started dating when she was 14 and I was 16. Uh, next year, we'll celebrate 20 years of marriage. We have a, a two-year-old daughter named Juniper, and we have a baby boy on the way. We started late, um, 25, so we started pretty, no, I'm joking. I'm well into my 40s. Um, and I've been a pastor for 20 years. Um, and I'm addicted to Dwayne The Rock Johnson's Instagram feed. So that's a little bit about me, and uh, I wanted you to know all about that. So every time Dwayne The Rock Johnson posts something on Instagram, I'm, and if you know me, I'm not really like this, but I'm there for it. I'm in, I, during pandemic, I got very, very addicted to his Instagram feed, to where, not to where I get notifications, but pretty close to that, to where the, algor the algorithm of, of Instagram knows that I'm only there for his stuff, so they just put it to the top. And, and um, you know, during pandemic, when I'm like, you know, eating uh, Trader Takis, which is Trader Joe's version of Takis, if you've ever eaten those, eating those in my basement, I'm like, I'm listening, watching his feed, and he's just so motivated by like, it's 2 a.m., and he's sweating into the camera, and I'm doing leg day. I'm about to eat a steak and go to bed and then wake up at 6 in the morning and wake up my girls. I'm like, I want that. I want this hustle. I was addicted to his hustle because nobody was really hustling during pandemic. Most people were just surviving. But somehow The Rock was doing way more than that. And, uh, you know, you want to be like him, but you can't really be like him. So he, he created an energy drink where he bottled all this energy that he has, calls it, and it works. it's actually pretty good, and it works a little bit. Um, and so I'm, like, really into it. And so much so where I'm reading comments. I don't really read comments, but I'll read his comments. And this is how bad it is, or it's gotten. And I'll notice there's a, there's a trend going on, though, in his comments. And the trend is this. I mean, people like in the medical profession, people in psychiatry, like people chiming in like, bro, you need some sleep. You need sleep. Your body needs sleep. If you don't sleep, you're going to die. We need you around, Rock. You might be president in however many years. You need to take care of your body, that sort of thing, right? So people are just hitting him up like you can't, you can't be this busy. You have to slow down at some moment, at some point. You have to calm down. I remember a few years ago when the Golden State Warriors, our like little local basketball team in San Francisco, uh, was on the most winningest streak in NBA history. It was 2015, 2016. And every starter was starting every game and playing the max amount of minutes. And everyone in the Bay was worried that our team would flame out. I remember one interview, they were interviewing Draymond Green, uh, who, who, who's a starter and on the team. And, and they were like, Draymond, we think that you guys are going to flame out. We're so worried for your health. And his response was this. Hey, bro, calm down. We're young. I'm in my 20s. We're in our 20s. We're young. We can do this. Now, if you know the end of the story, they don't win the championship that year because of injuries, and you might be excited about that, but whatever. But here's my point. My point is this. No matter how strong you are, if you're the rock, no matter how young you are, exhaustion and burnout will come and find you. It does not matter. It doesn't matter how strong you are, how smart you are. Exhaustion and burnout will come and find you. In fact, after the pandemic, we've all lived through, almost everyone I know is exhausted, especially leaders, exhausted and on the verge of burnout of some kind. 
The reality is exhaustion and burnout are very real. In 2019, the World Health Organization defined burnout as a syndrome associated with chronic, chronic stress and work, un, work that goes unmanaged. So chronic stress at work that goes unmanaged. Little did they know that just a few months after they released this report, the world would be bringing all of their work home, making the line between work and home close to impossible to define. Psychologist Christina Maslow, professor at Cal Berkeley, has been studying burnout since the 1970s. She says burnout has three components. The first component of burnout is just utter exhaustion. Physical and emotional exhaustion, when you feel like you've been under stress for too long. I think for a lot of us, a lot of us are there enduring this last, you know, 15, 18 months of pandemic, racial tension, mass shootings, bad news, riots, politics, homeschooling, whatever, where a lot of us are exhausted. The second thing, she says, that is, a, that is the component of burnout is cynicism. Burnout comes with a feeling of cynicism where you switch from trying to do your very best all the time to doing the bare minimum. Anyone else give up dressing the bottom half of your body during pandemic? Like that part, not, no one cares. Just all up here, like Zoom life, that's real. We think about, instead of thinking about doing our very best, we do, what can I do to just keep my job? How do I just remain a Christian the next year? How do I just get my kids fed a couple times a day? Like the bar gets lowered and we're filled with this cynicism. But the third component, which I think is the most potent, is blame. The third component is when you start to blame yourself. Thinking things like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not good at this? Things like life or adulting or work or faith, etc. Why can't I handle this? For me, this happened in last year, in November and December. I was in full burnout mode. I would get up in the morning and try to pray and think, why am I not good at this? I'm a pastor. I should be good at prayer. I can't even pray anymore. I would try to answer emails and questions from my staff or congregation and think, why can't I handle this? What is wrong with me? Burnout. Burnout was first recognized as a psychological diagnosis in 1974 when psychologist Herbert uh, Frudenberger applied it to cases of physical or mental collapse caused by overwork or stress. But burnout is different from exhaustion. Author Hel Helen Peterson explains, quote, exhaustion means going to the point where you can't go any further. Burnout means reaching that point and pushing yourself to keep going, whether for days or weeks or years. By the way, this is The Rock's motto in life. Push yourself to the limit and then keep pushing yourself. That's how you grow. I would say this. Burnout is when your soul can no longer bear the weight of your life. Where your life is so stressful, where the consequences are so real, that your soul can no longer bear it and you begin to burn out. For many of us, this was a reality way before the pandemic. A lot of us were reaching the verge of burnout because of grad school, because of work, because of two jobs, because of three jobs, because of life, because of children, whatever it is way before the pandemic, and pandemic like pouring gasoline on a fire. And now, now that we're coming out of everything, we're left with picking up where we left off or making up for lost time. Another article I read was trying to explain why millennials are considered the burnout generation. The writer, Helen Peterson, writes that burnout isn't a place millennials visit and come back from. It's our permanent resident. She's a millennial. She says, our permanent resident. Now, if you're a millennial in here, you're probably thinking, 
Finally, someone's saying it. This is literally my life. Ever since high school, burnout has been character. I, I, I think that way. This is how I live. I think that's all life is. And as I've said, these are not just problems that pandemic life has brought upon us. These are realities that many of us have been living into for a long time. Now, one of our, our uh, the reasons our culture is especially prone to exhaustion and burnout in America is because of our theology of progress. Theology of progress. Now, I say theology because we've turned it into that. We think life should always be moving up and to the right. Life should always be progressing. Progress has become our functional theology. It's what gets many of us out of bed in the morning, that we're going to make progress. Progress is the real theology our nation was built on. And in our progressive cities like San Diego, San Francisco, and beyond, we've turned progressivism into our into the ultimate urbanite belief system, meaning if we're not progressing, we're regressing, and that's the worst thing possible. Now, the way progress is experienced in our bodies is that we, we, always, we, we always are waiting to get to tomorrow. That's how we experience progress in our bodies. We're just trying to make it to tomorrow. We just wanna move out of today into the future. That's how progress is experienced. My daughter, Juniper, who's kind of running around here in, in the front. Um, she doesn't like the idea of tomorrow. She actually hates the idea of tomorrow. This is why it's hard for her to go to bed at night. Like it's time for bed. I don't want this to end. Whatever this is, I don't want it to end. And I don't even know what tomorrow is. What is that? I just know today. So it's really hard for her to get down. Like tomorrow we're going to the zoo. Like what? What is zoo, like, zoo now? I don't know what tomorrow means. I have no concept of it. What's now, right? Parents... A lot of parents were first service, so I'm sure there's parents in here. Uh, my wife, Ashley, read a post a few weeks ago that said, why do the people who want to go to bed have to put the people who don't want to go to bed to bed? <laughs> Which is true of almost every single parent. But of course, we adults know better. We know all about tomorrow, and typically it's daily life that's an obstacle in our way to progress. It's Today, right now, that's, that's what's in the way. We want to get to the future. We want to get to where our home remodel is done or when the kids move from diapers into potty training or to our summer vacation or we want to get to that job promotion. We want to get to that thing in the future. Most of us get out of bed for that future thing. Summer vacation, summer break, when I get married, when I move forward, we're always living in the future. This is how progress is felt in our bodies. And what this means, of course, is that we work hard and long and never really rest because our real main task in life is to get the heck out of here, get out of the now. We want to get out of the now and into the future. We can't really rest because we feel like the now, right now, the, where, we're, where we're living is a place of suffering and tribulation. And the sooner we get into the good and perfect future, the only place that we'll ever be truly happy and at peace, the better off we'll all be. But of course, there's no place to go because every time we finally reach the future, it vanishes into the present. This feeling drives our theology of progress. And our progress has led us to amazing technologies. The internet, the mobile phone, the TikTok, the Facebook, things like that. In the 1950s, this was a literal debate in the 1950s, America foresaw the progress of the supercomputer and people thought it would actually end the 40-hour work week. 
like when the supercomputers get to where they're actually a little bit more accessible to most, most Americans, most Westerners, it's going to ruin the 40-hour work week, and we might even go for up to a 30-hour work week and only work six months a year because all of the advancement technology would make it easier to work. And they would even say, and I saw this one really eerie 1950s commercial where it ended by saying, maybe we might one day be able to work from home. And it was ominous. I was like, ah. But what happened? What happened to this 1950s dream of working less, working six months a year, 30-hour work weeks? What happened? We traded. See, what people used to value in the 50s, and I'm not advocating we go back there at all, but the cultural value was time. People wanted more time to be at home with neighbors, family, and community. What happens is that we traded time for money. Instead of working that 30-hour work week and working six months of the year, we traded that for more work and thus more money. People worked more so they can get paid more. And when people make more, they could buy more stuff. And thus our GDP went up and our economy was better and our nation was stronger. And now it's our civic duty to consume and work and continue that cycle. Actually, there's stimulus packages to keep you consuming, to stimulate the economy because this cycle keeps going. You work, you make more money, you get more money, you, you buy more stuff, you buy more stuff, we make more stuff, we make more stuff, we make more money. And it keeps going around and around and around like this. So now in our culture, people who have a lot of money and no time, we call these people rich and successful. And people who have a great deal of time but no money, we call these people poor. And sometimes even worse, we call them lazy. Success in our culture means someone who is busy, works hard, is doing a lot of different things, and is making a great deal of money. So we traded time for money. So we use our time to make more money. And when we're not using our time to make money, we use our time to spend money. This is online shopping. This is our real, in real life shopping. This is vacations. This is Airbnb experiences. And if we're not doing all that, we have FOMO of the people who are doing that and posting about it online. Now, of course, we're back to this idea of exhaustion and burnout. So I'll just be really honest with you. My hope for this part of the sermon would be that you would feel anxious. So hopefully you're feeling anxious right now because that's my hope. Because this is real. When we come to church, we kind of like put that aside. But a lot of us know that work is waiting for us when we get home or work is waiting for us tomorrow. I want to dig this up because this is our culture. This is the culture that you've been acculturated into. This is water for us. This is what we drink and swim in every single day. We don't even know we're doing it. The spiritual writer Henry Nouwen writes in his book, Reaching Out, that there was a point in his life where, quote, I was living in a very dark place, and the term burnout was a convenient psychological translation for spiritual death. Spiritual death, that's where all this leads. We're not just exhausted. We're not just burnt out. Many of us are heading toward a spiritual death. And to this exhaustion and to this burnout and spiritual death, the writer of Hebrews says, and yet there remains a rest. And yet there remains a rest. Let these words be like medicine, like balm, like water. Hebrews 4.9. And yet there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I want you to hear something. 
It's not just any kind of rest. It's a Sabbath rest. It's not the rest of vacation. It's not the rest of lying on a couch, binge watching The Office for the fifth time. It's not the rest that comes from an energetic flow yoga class. This is something different. This is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, let me back up and give you some context to Hebrews, because Hebrews is kind of a, a gnarly book to understand. Up to this point in Hebrews, there's been a lot said in the library of Scripture about this idea of rest. In Genesis, we read that on the seventh day of creation, God rested from his labor. Commentators quickly and accurately point out that Adam and Eve's first day alive would have been on Sabbath. They were created on the sixth day, the seventh day is a day of rest, which says a lot about humanity and how we were created. We are human beings, not human doings. We were created to work, yes, but our work is from rest, not for rest. We were created in God's good, complete world and placed in it so that we can cause it to flourish and partner with him. But in that, we were created from this place of God's work and into a place of his rest. But of course, we all know the rest of the story, and we should know the story because the story should frame our imagination as followers of Jesus. This story goes that humanity rebelled. They didn't trust God. They didn't choose the way of loving trust in God's way. And one of the consequences was that work got hard. Anyone can, I would imagine, if you're working in any job, your job is hard. This is thorns and thistles. This is the curse of the fall. When I was growing up, I worked on a golf course. I was on a maintenance crew of a golf course. We would mow the, the, the grass, and we would, um, we would rake the sand bunkers and do all this stuff. And we had this joke, this joke between all the people that worked there when I was in high school is, we love our job. I mean, we work on a golf course. That's kind of nice. Our job would be amazing if it wasn't for the golfers. That was the joke, right? Like, we love working on a golf course, but if the golfers keep getting in our way of doing our job. Now, pastors sometimes have these same jokes, that ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. Now, not this church. I've heard other churches say this, right? Now, we all have our own version of this. My job would be great if it wasn't for the very reason I'm doing this job or something like that, right? This is thorns and thistles. And not just thorns and thistles, but predators and pillagers, Threats of all kinds in our work, threats of being stolen from, threats of being outperformed, threats of being outbid, threats of being our, our, our job being destroyed altogether or relocated or, or, um, or, or acquired from another company and your job is now obsolete. All of these things are threats to our work. So the idea of rest in the Old Testament consists of two main strands. One theologian says this way. In the Old Testament, the thematic treatment of the idea of rest consists of two main strands. The Sabbath rest from routine labor and the promise of rest from wandering, journeying, or enemy threat. So there is something about our work that both makes us tired and is threatened by pillagers, by journeying, by trying to find this or the next thing or keeping our job or once we, we build a successful company is to stay successful. Whatever it is, there's always this, this tension in our work. And the promise of rest has two tiers to it. It has, if you're tired, there's rest. If you're exhausted from hunting and hiding and, and trying to make it out in the world, there's a promise of rest from that as well. 
So in Genesis, we get introduced to this character named Noah. Noah's name means rest or comfort. But we know how that story turned out. He wasn't able to bring the rest his parents had hoped for when they named him. And in Exodus, when God delivers an enslaved people by a group, uh, enslaved people group by destroying their enemy Egypt, he says to them, quote, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And this is important because from this point on, when scripture speaks about God giving rest, it will always be in the context of his personal presence among his people. The way God gives rest is Yahweh will go before you. I will make rest. In me, you will find rest. Now, as you keep reading the Old Testament, you see that Israel eventually gets into the promised land, into the, quote, land of rest, but rest is elusive. It never seems to be permanent. And the people of God have moments of rest, both from labor and rest from their enemies and rest from wandering, but the fatigue of the fall seems to always find them. But then the prophets would foretell a day when God would bring Israel and all his people into his rest. So enter Jesus, Matthew 11. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, when Jesus says rest, that word is so loaded. It's loaded with Genesis. It's loaded with Exodus. It's loaded with the prophets. It's so loaded. It's loaded with this idea that God's very presence gives rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest isn't just physical rest. It's a soul rest from wandering. It's a soul rest from hustling. It's a soul rest from trying to figure things out yourself. It's a soul rest. It's not just a physical rest. It's a, it's a whole person rest. These words have direct correlation to Exodus 33. When God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So here it is. Finally, the rest we've been waiting for found in Jesus. Now what's interesting is that in, in, in this context, the rest that Jesus is referring to is connected directly to the Sabbath. This is important. We, we can take Hebrews 11, we can take it out of context, like Jesus brings us into rest, but no, his teachings actually, the context of it was Sabbath. Jesus fulfills all kinds of rest, which the Old Testament speaks of, rest for our soul, rest for the wanderer, rest from real enemies that torment us, which is why Jesus always is healing on the Sabbath, because Sabbath is supposed to be restorative from the things that haunt us. So he's healing people from uh, demon possession, he's healing people from ailments. Why? Because Sabbath restores us. And then Jesus, right after he says, come to me, you all who are weary, and I'll give you rest, there's a whole teaching Jesus does on the Sabbath after that, and then ends that teaching by saying, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Rest for your souls through Jesus is connected to the Sabbath. Okay, now let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews, like I said, a hard book to understand, but let's focus on these few words. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Here's how I want you to think about this. For you who are weary, exhausted, and burned out, there is a rest for you that is built into the fabric and the rhythm of creation itself. And I would argue, and I will argue, new creation itself. A rest that you can enter into, that you can set your watch to, that you can build your life around, that will bring you into the rest that you really need. 
Now, some of you who are Sunday school overachievers will say, I know the answer to this. The answer is Jesus. Jesus brings us into this rest. And guess what? You would be right. And I would also just redirect you a little bit, just a little bit. Jesus and the practice of Sabbath. Now, this isn't a Jesus and teaching, so don't tweet at me because I'm not, not even on Twitter anymore, so whatever. This is a Jesus through the practice of Sabbath, Jesus and the practice of Sabbath. We get the rest that Jesus brings, and we live this out through the practice of Sabbath. This is, this is literally what Jesus is teaching about in his teachings on him, him being the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what Hebrews is talking about. There is a rest that's out there for us and a Sabbath rest if we would choose to enter into it. Now, there is a practice. There's a way to practice this. And the way to practice this is just an old school Sabbath. So let me, let me talk about just what a Sabbath is for a second. Sabbath is simply a period of time where you stop from your working so you can rest. Let me talk about what this isn't. This isn't, um, I'm done working and so now I'm Netflix binging. That's not rest. You're like, but I'm resting. Actually, your, bo- your brain is not resting. Uh, your body isn't even resting. That's not even, well, I rest by scrolling on my phone for eight hours after at night when I should be sleeping. That's not rest either. Sabbath rest is something completely different. Sabbath is you cease working. Shabbat literally means cease and rest. It's one of the Ten Commandments. No, it's literally one of the Ten Commandments. It's in there. And now it's the only commandment we brag about breaking. No one goes around like, I murdered today or I, I, I cheated on my spouse today. But all of us say, I'm so busy. Like that's... That's one of the rules of the Sabbath, you know, not being that. So, you're, like, we brag about this. And we're told two things about the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments. We're told, remember the Sabbath and to keep the Sabbath holy. Remember and keep it holy. It's interesting that most of the other commandments start with thou shalt or thou shalt not. We're told to remember the Sabbath as if we would easily forget the Sabbath, as if work would tend to easily, so easily get out of control where we put off resting for a thing called vacation and then do something super big and fun on vacation that's really not restful at all. Then when we get done with vacation, we feel like we need another vacation. It's almost as if we would do something like that and therefore we're told to remember the Sabbath. So built in the Ten Commandments, which is a way God's free people were to live into their freedom, by the way, you know that. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt, and they're free, and the good rule that God puts forth for his free people is this. Stop working. We must remember to stop on Sabbath. This is how my wife and I and our family, we practice Sabbath. We practice Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night. We stop work. We put away our phones. We light two candles to remember the context of the two Sabbath laws from the Torah as a practice of imitation and a practice of liberation. We'll get there in a second. My wife says a a Sabbath blessing. My two-year-old, Juniper, copies her. We eat. We walk. We reflect. We play and lay on the floor and read books and have no place to go. We have to stop, not because our work is done. Our work is never done. 
Your work is never done. It's never done. I mean, if we stop only when we are finished with our work or when we're in the future, we'll never stop. Some of you know this. You haven't stopped since grad school. Adults know that work is never done. With every accomplishment, there arises new responsibility. Every swept floor invites another sweeping. But what the Sabbath does, it helps us to resist the artificial urgency of our days. There's something that keeps telling us in our mind that we have to keep hustling. We have to send one more email. We have to check our email one more time. We have to work on that project. We have to keep doing It's an artificial urgency of our days. Sabbath helps us to stop, look that right in the face, and say, I resist you. We're to remember the Sabbath. Now, as we remember the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath restores us. This was the point that Jesus was bringing on the Sabbath when he said in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people meet the requirements of Sabbath. This is why Jesus healed and fed on the Sabbath. It's supposed to be restorative. So if you're super strict about Sabbath being like this and like that and not this, it's not really the point. The restriction should be the container in which restoration is possible. So make the form and then allow the fire to come. Build the form. Build the like, I'm going to rest from this time to this time, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to start my my Sabbath with a long meal, and I'm going to take a walk, and I'm going to whatever it is. But here's the problem. We too often have our own idea of how we want to be restored. We seek restoration through the Food Network, through recreational sports, through shopping, through yoga, etc. So when I say take a day a week and Sabbath, some of you might be thinking spa day or me time or I'm going golfing. Shabbat shalom, everyone. That's what I'm doing. The context of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, which were given to the generation that that wasn't in Egypt, but was about to move into the promised land after the, the, the generation that was in Egypt was disobedient and they died off. That's a different sermon altogether. But as they're moving into the promised land, they're reciting and remembering. So there's two different versions of, if you remember, of the Ten Commandments. The first version of the Ten Commandments comes in Exodus, and it says this, remember the Sabbath day, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So the first um, uh, commandment we're given, or the first time we're given the, the, the Sabbath commandment, it's for imitation. We're to imitate God. God worked and rested. We're his people. We're to imitate him. We work, we rest. But then in Deuteronomy, it's different. Deuteronomy says, observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and announced your arm. Therefore, The Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. The first commandment was about imitation. This one's about liberation. You are free. The the reason why there's a callback to slavery is because you're no longer slaves anymore. See, what Sabbath allows us to do is it restores us back to our true identity. Not only are we imitating the way God called us to live, we're literally practicing the way of Jesus. We have to imitate Jesus, Jesus' Sabbath. But what we also do is we remember that all of the tyranny of our acculturation of being Americans, all the things that we're told that being an American is about, um, about consumerism, being an American is about all these different ideologies or being this person, being a West Coaster, being a San Diegan, whatever it is, all these things that we're told, we have to hustle, we have to make it, you have to have your, your house and your 
in your car and you're at this. You have to travel all these things. We can stop once a week and say, I resist this. I am a child of God and my identity is found squarely in Jesus Christ. And we practice that by putting down our credit cards and putting down our phones and putting down all the ways our culture says, this is how you're supposed to show up to life. And we say no to that. This is so important. Now, we don't have external pharaohs anymore. We don't have tyrants that make us work long hours, making us go seven days a week. We have laws in America to prevent us from all that stuff. We don't have external pharaohs, but what we do have are internal pharaohs. We have these little voices in our head that says, if we don't wake up and hustle, if we don't wake up and do something, make something, perform, kill it today, then we're nothing and we're nobody. That internal pharaoh says that when we stop, making will be worthless. And worse than that, we'll feel worthless. The pharaoh lives inside all of us now. It lives in our phones. It lives in our computers. It lives in our TV. It lives on all our feeds. And we're driven by this inner voice. But it's not our true vocation. It's a bastard vocation. It's a bastard voice. It's not the real voice that says if we don't keep hustling, we're nothing. This is a day on Sabbath that we stop the eternal Pharaoh and we say we resist you. We take up our true vocation as God's kids, as free people. So when you Sabbath, this is very important that you stop and step back. This is very important. On Sabbath, um, my wife and I, we, we usually take long Sabbath walks and we do this thing called Eucharisto where we just remember our week through Thanksgiving and we're grateful and we're like, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And we're seeing through remembering our past week how God is weaving his word, his will, his way through all of our life circumstances. The redemptive things, the hard things, how God was in it. And we're seeing, we're reminding ourselves as God's kids in God's kingdom that he is at work reweaving glory through us through our week. This helps shape our imagination. This helps us practice and engage the work week coming up where we know God will do the same thing. God and his grace will be at work weaving glory in us again. Sabbath restores us because it allows our souls to catch up from our bo- with our body. You know, I heard from my two congregants uh, in my church, two of the members of my church, that they loved COVID because of their mental illness. They said they actually were able to get mentally healthy during COVID because the world slowed down to the pace of their lives. This is, this is actually not, a, not an uncommon thing. It's not an unsurprising thing because the world moves way too fast. Sabbath day, we rest and allow the world to rest, to be restored, to slow down. So we were to remember the Sabbath. The Sabbath restores us. And finally, the Sabbath reforms us. My point here is that Sabbath will not be easy. I don't know if you've, um, if you've started practicing this yet, but to be reformed from being malformed is never easy, especially when you're just beginning to practice Shabbat. I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture here when I talk about Sabbath. Like, oh my gosh, Sabbath delight. It's amazing. You're frolicking and whatever. We always use the word frolic when we think of Sabbath. Like, we want that kind of stuff. But Sabbath, taking a day to rest and worship and delighting God, more often than not, feels like detoxing from a drug. Your skin will crawl. Your mind will fixate on things like your phone and Amazon and that one email you forgot to send. And that's how you know it's working. 
This is how the internal Pharaoh gets drowned into the sea. The Spanish mystic John of the Cross says that in our spiritual journey and spiritual practices, to be suspicious if the cross of Christ does not begin to come and find us. I think this thought works very well when we think about the Sabbath. On Sabbath, the cross of Christ will come find you. It will help you face your own death. It will help you face your own letting go. And don't be alarmed if on the Sabbath, the cross of Christ begins to come and find you. When you put down your phone, you will start feeling your insignificance. When you stop producing, you'll be face-to-face with, who am I really? When you turn your phone back on in the Sabbath and you have zero text messages. This is the way the cross comes and finds us. For, for me, when I first started practicing Sabbath, we just planted the church. I work, I, at that time I had Mondays off, so Fridays was my sermon day. So I would try to rest on Saturday and I would have sermon brain all day long. And I would be so tempted to turn my computer back on to keep working because you know how what I thought? I thought Sunday morning is how I have to prove my existence. Sunday morning I have to get up in front of that church, our young church, and prove that I'm worth following. Prove that I, 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 I'm, I'm worth listening to. I have to prove my worth. I have to show up and do good so people understand and know Jesus and know his word and they say thank you to me for showing them Jesus. I have to prove my worth tomorrow. And so I feel like I have to keep working. I can't just rest on Saturday. But Sabbath was the day I had to rest. And when, it, when, it, when I did, the cross of Christ came and found me. It found me because I had to practice that that story was not true. I wasn't holding the world together. I wasn't holding my church together or the sermon together. God was at work. And I was going to show up Sunday morning in the right headspace. The only way I can do that is I had to do it from rest, not for rest. So the cross of Christ came and found me on Sabbath. I began to feel depressed. And the reason why is because I had to come face to face with my own limits. My own things I had to bury, let go of, let go of the illusion of control, die to some things. And I'll tell you, after years of this practice, I don't remember the last time I thought about a sermon on the Sabbath. So I want to invite you, formally, to start to practice this ancient practice for yourself. I want to close here. One of the things that we don't really talk about a lot in the, in the church that gets kind of glossed over is something that happened between Jesus' crucifixion and Easter Sunday. And that was Holy Saturday or Sabbath. It says from a text that we read at the very beginning that Jesus literally rested on the Sabbath after his crucifixion. His disciples observed the Sabbath. They tried to get his body down from the cross on Friday afternoon, put it in a tomb, rested. You didn't hear anything from the disciples on Saturday. And then Sunday morning is Easter Sunday. What happened between those two times? Rest. See, in Genesis, God saw that, that everything that he, 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 he created was good and he rested after creation. Sabbath rest is built into the fabric and the rhythm of creation itself. In the passion... Jesus rested after his work as well. On Holy Saturday, after completing his life of ministry and suffering on the cross for our sins, the Son of God rested in a dark tomb. This rest of Jesus led to the glory of Easter Sunday, in which his victory over death is revealed as God who inaugurates new creation. These two rhythms, 
of rest cannot be separated. God's work in creation and in redemption have deep connection with holy rest. It's been said that our willingness to rest depends on what, we'll, what we believe we'll find there. What creation and new creation teach us in regards to rest is that when we do finally rest, we can be confident that we'll meet God himself there, which is why the promise of Jesus is to find rest for our souls. Every Sabbath, my wife sings the Shabbat blessing, and I I turn to everyone in the house, and I just lay my hands on them or place my hands over them and say, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom to Ashley. I'll turn to my daughter, Junie. Shabbat Shalom to Junie. Turn to... uh, the baby that's growing in um, my wife's womb that my daughter has named Baby Coco. Shabbat Shalom to Baby Coco. Shabbat Shalom to Prince, our golden doodle. And any other guests that are in the house, Shabbat Shalom, and I, Shabbat Shalom to me. And then I say, Jesus, thank you for bringing us into true rest. May your rest, may your rest rest on our home right now. May it fall on our home. And we enter into your rest that you work to accomplish that we can just lay it all down and say, we're your children, we're your kids, and we did nothing to earn it. Because, church, there remains a rest for us, a rest for our souls. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the rest that you bring us into. And I do believe, I honestly believe, that there is something so countercultural, such a deep act of resistance in our culture, as to be people of rest, be a culture of rest, be a people where, the, where people around us know that we set our rhythm to, to, the, to the pace of Jesus. May this church be restored as they rest. May they remember your grace as they rest. And may they be reformed into the way of Jesus as they rest. In Jesus' name.